Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast with Rebecca Coombs, the place where you can learn how to achieve a happy, healthy gut. Here's what's coming up on today's show. Welcome to episode 90 of the Healthy Gut Podcast. And today I'm joined by Catherine Maslin, who is a naturopath and nutritionist and is the creator of The Shift Podcast and also the audio documentary series showing people how they can make a shift in their health. Catherine has a real focus on gut health and today we talk all about why the gut is such an important foundation of all aspects of your health and she shares her seven key areas that she focuses on with her clients when they're trying to regain their health. Now if you would like some extra support on your SIBO journey I would love for you to join my five-week SIBO discovery challenge. Kicking off this August you will learn my absolute key pillars to health that I take my coaching clients through when we are starting their journey to live well with SIBO. So if you would like to know more about this really exciting five-week program, simply head to thehealthygut.com or click the link in the show notes. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Catherine Maslin all about the seven key steps to regaining your gut health. Welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Coombs, and today I'm joined by Catherine Maslin, who is a naturopath, a nutritionist, a mother, entrepreneur, and author of the best-selling book, Get Well, Stay Well. And as well as having personally seen over 5,000 people in her clinical practice, where she specializes in complex and chronic disease, Catherine is the principal and creator of the Integrated Health Clinic Shift, where they have a unique world-first membership-based model of holistic healthcare. Catherine's an international speaker, media commentator, and the host of The Shift, an audio docu-series all about gut health. And you can hear yours truly on the, on her wonderful new podcast and a docu-series. Uh, Catherine and I met up not so long ago and talked all about gut health. Today we're going to be talking about gut health, but more importantly, why it's so vital for us to consider more than just our gut when we're returning our bodies to health. So welcome to the Healthy Gut Podcast, Catherine. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me. 
My pleasure. Now, we've known each other for a little while now, and you've been doing some amazing stuff. You're just kicking goals left, right and centre. And I'd love for you to talk about why you got into this. You've got your own really interesting story. And uh, for those of my listeners that may not have heard of you yet, uh, and they will know who you are by the end of today's podcast, it would be great for you to, to share, you know, why you came to be a nutritionist and a naturopath and someone who's so passionate about helping people get their health back on track. Okay, so I'm going to give you a bit of a condensed version of the story, but essentially the way that it goes is um, when I was very young, I grew up in a home with domestic violence. So trauma was a really big part of my history. And as a result of that, sort of had quite a troubled childhood, ended up, you know, on heroin at the age of 15. So for a lot of people that might seem as quite a shock, but, you know, it was a big time in my life and there was a lot going on and I guess that was my way of dealing with it. So at 15 years old, I was homeless. I was living on the street of Melbourne and I was addicted to heroin. Now, I was very lucky at the time that I had a little angel that tapped on my shoulder and a friend of mine asked me to come and move to North Queensland with her. So I was living in Melbourne at the time and I moved up to North Queensland into the Daintree rainforest and it literally saved my life. Now, when I moved to Daintree, I met a wonderful family um, and Jenny was, was the mum of the family and Jenny was like a second mother to me. I was 15, 16 years old, living up there all alone and she really was a rock for me but unfortunately Jenny had a condition called lupus which is an autoimmune disease and as the years went by Jenny got sicker and sicker and what I observed was her medication cabinet grew and grew and grew but she wasn't getting any better so it kind of you know made me really think goodness like is this really the way to go Jenny she's seeing all these doctors she's taking all these medications and she's actually getting worse and not better so it really led me to have a drive to look into different things and it just so happens that I stumbled across a book on herbal medicine one day and I read this book and it was called herbal rituals and it was a bit quite romanticized actually um (laughs) account of herbal medicine and how they work and I thought oh my God, like why aren't people using these medicines and why don't more people know about it? So I packed up and moved um, down to Brisbane and I started to study naturopathy. So unfortunately, while I was studying, I got a phone call from Jenny's daughter one day and Jenny had passed away. Um, She was only 45 years old. So, you know, she wasn't very old and it it was a hard time for me, but it really strengthened my resolve to go, you know what, we just really need to be doing better for people. So I went on to do a Bachelor of Western Herbal Medicine and then a Bachelor of Naturopathy and I started practicing about 12 years ago and I haven't really looked back. And there are so many people that are so grateful that you haven't looked back and that you've done the the training that you've done. It's really interesting that you that you had that experience of watching someone who was under the care of so many doctors on so many medications and just getting sicker. And I watched that with my with my own dad. He has leukemia. He's got a whole host of gut issues. Not that he's doing anything about it. <laughs> and dad is getting sicker. And traditional or, you know, standard Western medicine is, sure, keeping him alive because he's got leukemia and he would have passed away if he hadn't gone on to his medication. But I know there's so much more that could be done for my dad if only he was open to it which is not, sadly. And I think that's a really important first step often is being open to look at different options. 
And I think it'll be a good conversation that we can have today, Rebecca, because there's that being ready, you know, being ready to look at your stuff, do the work, you know, something that triggers you enough where you're unwell enough that you're going to need to look at things. But also then it's like, are you ready to look at all the parts, the emotional parts, the physical parts, the spiritual parts of you that have led you to be, you know, where you are today? And that can be really confronting and challenging. As I know myself, as you know, we've been through our own experiences um talk to me about what you see with the people that come through your clinic what generally happens for somebody to be ready to make the shift okay so to begin with there needs to be a point of crisis so what we're really really good at is suppressing stuff for as long as we possibly can and we're brought up in this culture where it's sort of a she'll be right mate you know just keep keep going get on with it type of attitude where people really ignore things until they get pretty bad so what this means that often that by the time people come to their door their symptoms are bothering them enough that they're in a bit of a crisis point where it's affecting their quality of life or their relationships or their energy or just how they're feeling day to day so when people come to see us um, we actually are looking to put them on a journey but the start of the journey always needs to begin with the person being ready and they may not necessarily have to be ready for everything but they need to be ready to make some level of change so a good example of that is someone might be ready to you know just reduce the sugar in their diet and change a few little things while we kind of build up that confidence and courage and energy and vitality so that they can take the next step our clinic we specialize in membership based care and we work with people for a minimum of four months so we are really looking to work with people who are ready and really want to make significant shifts in their life but also we recognize that wellness is a journey and there's a lot of ups and downs and anyone that's listening that's well alive (laughs) will um, really recognize that there's good and bad times and the health and healing journey isn't linear especially when you're looking at your SIBO type stuff Um, and it's it can be really up and down so what we want to really recognize is that when people are on a wellness journey and they're trying to make these shifts that there's going to be multiple small shifts that lead to big shifts in your health and your life and that you need to recognize that it's not always going to be good times and you need to roll with that so what we really want to look at is are you ready let's help to navigate those roadblocks along the way so that you can continue to progress and be more and more ready to make change in your life. Something that I hear commonly and I really see that there's a correlation between the type A overachiever type personalities of which I fall into that category. I'm always trying to do things the best, the fastest, the quickest, the most perfect and, uh, and that's really common with the people I speak to anyway amongst the SIBO community and, and so that Um, approach is then put through our SIBO treatment and this is exactly what I did when I finally discovered this thing that had been bothering me for so many years was called SIBO. I wanted to be the most perfect SIBO patient my naturopath had ever seen and I hear this commonly that people start their SIBO treatment, they do it perfectly in their mind for a week, two weeks and then they're frustrated that they haven't had complete resolution of their situation, their symptoms, whatever else is going on, because they're like, but I'm doing this perfectly. Why isn't it fixed? Why isn't it ready to go into the new life that I want now? How does one manage those often really high expectations of oneself on a journey that it can be difficult to know how long it's going to take to start to feel better? I think the first thing that you need to be looking at is you need to stop trying to fix yourself. 
you know, you, you, you're not a machine that needs to be fixed. Signs and symptoms are your body's language telling you that you need to look at something in your life, in your mindset or something that's going on for you. So it's trying to really flip that mentality that there's a problem and I've got to just fix it and I need to be back to normal, whatever normal is, because the state that your body is in at the moment, you know, is there for a reason. So it's more about trying to get back to knowing yourself, trusting yourself. Okay, what does my body need and, and getting the right help and guidance to get there? Because it is really, really tough. And it's about setting the right expectations as well, because the biggest stress in in the treatment journey is putting expectations around wanting everything to be fixed right now. And you didn't get to where you are overnight. So patients that come to see us for sometimes years, these symptoms have been happening and been been building up and building up. And you can't expect that to turn around in a month or even two months or, or often even in six months. So one of the old naturopathic sayings we have is that for every year you've had a problem, it will take at least one month to fix it um, or to correct it. So it's looking at giving your body that opportunity for time and healing. But you do have to be proactive as well in this, but it's also trying to separate the mental part of that the part of you that will obsess and attach to that because sometimes that can actually self-create what's happening for you you know you become your disease rather than experiencing the disease that's a really important point and a comment that was made to me early on in my um sort of SIBO treatment was someone said to me you wear a, a badge of honor of SIBO and of being sick because that's all I'd ever been and it was very confronting to have that said to me. I was quite offended and put out in the very early days of that. But I went away and thought about it and I thought, oh, my gosh, they're so right. I have identified as the sick person. Everyone has known me as the sick person. What is my identity? And particularly as I started to regain my health, I really had this identity crisis where I was like, well, I haven't been sick in six months, then 12 months, then two years. Um, I don't spend every winter in bed. Who am I now? And that can be quite confronting as your health changes. And and also you can have, I know I did, I was so over, like I was overstimulated, I guess, with symptoms that I would then go looking for them. And every little grumble or, you know, tweak or movement in my body, I'd be like, oh, is that SIBO coming back? So how do we start to calm our systems, our brain, that sort of overactive response that we've had for many of us, we've had for such a long time because that's been all we've ever known. So this is a really interesting one and it's a conversation I have with my SIBO patients all the time and this is where they've been getting like gastrointestinal symptoms for so long that they're just looking and waiting for it. So every meal it's expecting that bloating is going to come or there's going to be pain or wind or, or any of that. And uh, what I say to them is not for normal humans, they will get bloated sometimes. Okay, so a little bit of bloating can actually be a normal thing. Um, but also it's that, you know, you need to look at when you're undergoing this healing journey, especially with SIBO, is that things are going to bloat you. And if you can be at peace with that, and if you can accept that and go, okay, you know what, I am going to react to things on this journey. It's you don't have as much emotion attached to it. Because what can sometimes happen is you change your diet, you're doing your stuff, you're feeling really good. And then all of a sudden, you have a bit of a flare up, and then everything comes crushing down. And 
And where as humans, we have this thing called negative bias and negative bias is where we'll always focus on the negative rather than the positive. So you might have, you know, two, three weeks where you've had no bloating, feeling really good, energy is amazing. And then one little episode of bloating and it all goes out the window and the negative self-talk will start, you know, what did I eat? What was it? You know, should I have not eaten that? Was I ready? Maybe this is the thing. And we begin this whole rhetoric about it. So when we're in that internal dialogue, we're putting ourselves in flight or fight, you know, where we're in this fear state and the opposite of flight or fight is feeding and fornicating, which is digestion and reproduction. So your digestive system is going to react to more things when we're constantly obsessing over it. Um, but it does become almost a like a chronic condition with people with food and there's, there's a lot of emotion attached to it. So to begin with, often there's emotion to begin with when, when people are sick and undergoing SIBO and other things, but then the disease itself causes emotion around food. So every, every time we eat, there's emotion and there's fear and there's concern and there's we're not enjoying it anymore. So it actually, those emotional attachments to food are really important. We've got a whole episode on that in the shift actually, because emotional eating and our emotions around food really can drive a lot of the symptoms that we're getting. They can. Something that I work with my um, coaching clients on is around the, um, how you document the changes because the tiny microscopic changes that occur day in, day out as you start to return to health um, can be very difficult to remember as they happen. And sometimes they can be things like uh, if you normally, if you're normal, let's say, is that you wake up bloated and you're bloated the whole day long, your new normal might be that you don't bloat till lunchtime. Now, you might not remember of what you, the changes in your bloating because that's just become your new normal. But if you document it and we have our food and mood diary where people write down um, what they're eating, how they're feeling, um, it's a really great way for people to look back and go, oh, my gosh, look, four weeks ago, look how I was and look where I am today. I'd forgotten how much I've changed because the changes are actually quite small but they're profound. And when I went through my own experience, the first treatment with SIBO, I had never gone to the toilet frequently. Never. I used to go maybe once or twice a week. And reasonably quickly, within the first month, I started going to the toilet every day. And first of all, it was like I'd go three times in the week, then four times, then five times. And I remember when I was like, oh, look, I've, I've opened my bowels seven days in a row. That's a whole week. Oh, my gosh. And I was so excited to be, you know, celebrating a daily poop. <laughs> But I wouldn't have necessarily noticed if I hadn't have been documenting it. Do you work with the people that you see around, like do you have tips and techniques on how people can monitor or in a positive way the changes that they're making? Yeah, so we within our program, we have touch points where we're checking in and checking in and looking back. Okay, how are you now? How were you then? So there's a few kind of check-ins like that over our four-month initial process that we're looking at with people because you're right, people forget. Um, but also there's certain symptoms that bother people that aren't as important. So I might see a patient and literally resolve 20 different symptoms, but there'll be one and often it's around it'll be bloating, weight or skin are the top three that bother people the most. And if that one's not fixed, they're still in crisis mode 
it, it's it's insane. But when you look back on it and go, well, look at all these things that have changed. We are making progress. It can then actually help you to get back in it. But certainly, I think you should always document the start of the process and see see what's happened because things will change and you'll forget because it'll become your new normal, which is fantastic. But it's also you need to celebrate your wins and make sure that you are acknowledging how far you've come. You do, definitely. Now, in naturopathy, the gut is seen as the centre of all health. Can you talk a little bit about why that is? Yeah, so naturopathically, we say all disease begins in the gut. Now, it's a bit of a traditional Hippocratic saying, um, but the reason that we, we are so strong in this is because there's a couple of ways that you can look at it. The first part is the gut is the way that we get nutrients into our body. So if there's any type of gut dysfunction, it can theoretically affect any other system in the body that's going to be nutrient deficient as a result of that. So it can affect the whole health. We know that the gut is connected to the brain um, and gut brain is a thing that we've been banging on as naturopaths for about 25 years. And um, we know that the immune system is really important for gut healing. We know that there's a connection between gut and skin. We know that there's a connection between gut and detoxification and liver. So you name the organ body system, the gut has a connection to it. And they connect, they actually will affect one another. So when you talk about gut brain connection, it's not just your gut that will be affecting your brain and nervous system function. It's actually your nervous system function and stress levels that will affect the gut too. So this is where we look at things naturopathically as holistically and we're treating the whole body. So I would never have someone come in and I'm only treating their gut. I'd look at the areas. So if they come in, for instance, and they're bloated and they're constipated and they're tired and they're not sleeping, they have anxiety, you know, they're getting colds and flus really frequently, then we're going to be looking at what we need to look at your gut, your nervous system, your adrenals, but also we need to boost immune system. And what happens with that is that the herbal medicines and nutritional supplements that we're using and the dietary interventions, they have this synergistic effect. And I say that with naturopathy, we get side benefits rather than side effects largely. So if I'm treating your brain, then I'm going to get a side benefit into the gut. If I'm treating your gut microbes I'm going to get side benefits into all different areas of the body so it's very holistic I really like that side benefits <laughs> that's a great phrase um, so you said that you never just treat the gut in isolation and I see this commonly with with people especially amongst some of those big Facebook groups where they might have taken it among, upon themselves to treat their gut health because perhaps they don't have a practitioner near them they haven't found somebody that they gel with, they don't know where to start. So they're reading, oh, well, these people took berberine and Alimax and well, I, I guess I should take that too. Um, firstly, what, what are the risks if we just treat the gut in isolation, particularly if we're doing it on our own? And what else do we need to be considering? And I know you've got several elements that you consider as well as the gut. Okay. So if you treat anything in isolation, what's going to happen is the pressures outside of that system that are causing the problem may still be there. So I would say, you know, a good 80% of gut issues originate with stress and nervous dysfunction and mood problems. Um, and then a diet, a big, big proportion of that as well. So if you can imagine that, 
you're treating the gut, you're doing all the nutrition and it's helping. Yeah, it'll help because it's sort of healing a bit of damage, but you're going to hit a wall where you're only going to get so far with that because you're not actually addressing the true root cause of things. Now, if you had to choose one system in the body to treat in isolation, I probably would choose the gut, but I would never treat gut without brain and I would never treat brain without gut. They sort of go hand in hand and by doing both, you just get better results and things, things will work better. But it also means then if you're treating the gut, you can be ignoring some other symptoms so it could be you know um, and this is where you have to be really careful too you might be treating the gut for instance for a bit of bloating and you're using certain herbs that are calming things down but you haven't done any other testing to see what else is going on in the body you know there could be an autoimmune disease which is inflammatory or there could be um, some nervous dysfunction or there could be all kinds of things going on but because you're only focusing on one area you're missing that whole picture in regards to taking things like Alamax which is like your garlic or berberine Um, or any antimicrobials I think that really you know you need guidance with these things I think people underestimate the power of herbal medicines in their antimicrobial properties and to simply go online and look up something or do something that someone else is doing when it's altering your gut microbiome I think that's actually quite dangerous and can cause more harm than good Um, interestingly I was looking at one of those gut health um groups this morning and there was someone asking advice for a 16 month old baby saying hey I'm trying to heal my baby's gut what do you think I should do should I give them celery juice and I was just like please go and see a naturopath (laughs) you know um this just isn't the type of thing where you need to ask in a forum you know this is where um you know expert advice is important and although I think groups and forums are great and really really supportive it's not great just to for what works for one person does not work for another so you need to make sure that you're doing what's right for you and what's safe definitely and the one thing I I'm like a broken record when people contact me I get a lot of emails from people saying what should I do can you give me advice on my treatment and my standard response is I will happily put you into the hands of a qualified practitioner you need to be in the under the care of a doctor a naturopath somebody that has experience has treated many people with gut issues so they can bring their experience and their qualifications and training to the table to help you. I don't think we should be out there trying to treat ourselves based on something we read on someone's blog or on a Facebook group. I think it's really, really potentially quite dangerous. Um, something else that was um, that, that it can happen, and if anybody wants to go back and listen to episode six, so right back at the start of the Healthy Gut uh, podcast, I interviewed Katie Coldwell, and she um, is one of the founding members of, of a fantastic SIBO support Facebook group. She shared her story on that episode where her bloating, yes, was coming from SIBO, but she actually had ovarian cancer. So we can't look at only the gut. And she shared that story because she wants women to really keep looking and investigating and not just settling for, oh, I've got SIBO, that's it. And so that resonates with what you've said, Catherine, around we need to take a whole body approach to looking at why we might be experiencing something because bloating can be caused by so many things, can't it? Yeah, and this is where you need to go and get a diagnosis. So if you have ongoing chronic gut symptoms, diarrhea, constipation, you know, severe bloating, pain, and that's been going on for a while, you need to rule out that there's nothing more sinister going on. So you do need to go and actually see a doctor to begin with, just to rule out those more sinister things. Um, But really, you know, a doctor, a naturopath, an integrative GP, someone that's really 
can have a look at all these underlying factors. Because as you said, you know, you don't want to be missing things like Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, um, certain bowel cancer, et cetera, can cause some of these symptoms. And I don't want to be alarmist, but I also think if you're having digestive symptoms, the first port of call should not be an online program and Facebook group. It should be a, a health practitioner to rule out anything that's more sinister. And so you know actually what's happening. Something that I talk about with my coaching clients is around the importance of testing. And I know sometimes people feel frustrated when they might have a colonoscopy or an endoscopy come back negative or that they haven't found anything. And I say to them, that's fantastic because you've got some answers as to what it's not. Now, you might you need to keep looking as to what it could be, but the fact that they haven't found bowel cancer or they didn't find a, um, indications of an inflammatory bowel disease is great because you can mark that off or whatever they've been looking for. You can mark that off and say, well, it's not that. Let's move on through the list of potential things that it can be. So I don't think testing, I don't think we should be avoiding testing. I think testing can give us such a good picture of what's going on in our bodies. Absolutely. So you've got several elements um, around improving health and gut health. Um, are you able to share what your kind of key uh, fo- areas of focus are? Yeah, it's really interesting because I interviewed a heap of people around this and asked them this question. And I feel like for me, I'm, I'm quite hard down the line of certain things around gut health, whereas a lot of people are a bit more, oh, maybe this or that. But my definites are gluten, gluten, wheat, um, wheat more so, but I would just cut out gluten altogether. And the reason for that is like, as most of your listeners probably know by now, is that gluten increases zonulin, which wears down the gut lining. It's inflammatory and we literally just can't digest it. Wheat is not what it used to be so gluten is actually like a no I take it out of the diet of all of my patients but especially if they have gut problems it's 100% they need to get off it while they're doing the healing process 100% at least the other one is dairy now dairy um, I would remove while we're healing the gut and not necessarily permanently but the molecules in dairy are big so casein the protein in dairy in particular is just big and hard to digest and inflammatory and the way that I explain it to my patients is that cows have four stomachs they're designed to digest cellulose we are not we're very different beings so dairy actually causes a lot of people digestive symptoms and in fact most people will find that cutting wheat and dairy out of their diet will relieve a lot of their symptoms or reduce them at the very least. The other one is sugar. Now, sugar, we're talking refined sugar. I'm not talking fruit, natural sugars, carbohydrates, any of that type of thing, but I'm talking actually straight sugar. So they're sort of my biggest three when we're looking at initial gut healing for removal. Um, Obviously, if people have bacterial stuff, we can get into more specifics around FODMAPs and certain things. But as a general rule, that'd be a a case-by-case basis. And I don't do a FODMAPs or restrictive diet like that unless I have to. Now, on the other side of things, if we're wanting to improve gut health and improve your microbiome, the biggest thing is fibre. Um, And this is fibre from all different types of sources. So we're talking nuts and seeds. We're talking whole grains, gluten-free whole grains like brown rice, quinoa, um, buckwheat, millet, that type of thing. Also legumes, so lentils, chickpeas and beans. And I know we're on a SIBO podcast and for some people in that process, they're not going to be able to have them at certain times. But certainly for my patients, I want to work towards healing them to a point where they can include legumes because they're a fantastic source of protein and soluble fibre. And also fruits and vegetables unpeeled organic 
vegetables, okay? Um, and uh, there's this, there's a more specific things that we might do, but I'm a really big advisor of bone broth um, unless you're vegan. So bone broth is just really healing, nourishing for the gut, um, and it's something really easy and cheap that people can make and do. And if you are vegan or even if you can have bone broth, the other food I love for gut is okra. And okra is an Asian vegetable that you can get from Asian supermarkets mostly, but it's really quite slimy. So when you cook with it, it creates this mucolage and that mucolage is beautiful for healing the lining of the gut, but it's also a really good prebiotic. It's a vegetable that I first encountered when I lived in the UK and I used to make it quite a bit. I was vegetarian when I was there. So I used to eat you know, such interesting vegetables bought by the Middle Eastern and African communities to the UK. I made it recently for my partner Sam and I, and he has massive textural issues. Anything that's remotely slimy is completely a turn off for him. He can't even think about slimy food without gagging. And I served up what I thought was a delicious okra. Um, I did it like an Indian style kind of curry and I was eating it going, oh, isn't this lovely? And he was like, oh, oh don't ever give that to me again. So I guess if you've got textural issues, maybe start out slowly <laughs> or small, small serves. Um, something that I've had to do with uh, my gut um you know, again, it's this type A personality. You go into, I'm going to go and eat legumes and then you eat a whole plate and then you're bloated and gassy and you're thinking, oh my gosh, why did that fail? Um, so something that I've had to do with my own food as I've reintroduced some of these um, more fibrous plant-based foods is start slow. Um, how do you get your patients starting slow and like what kind of quantities do you get people to start out with if they haven't eaten a food for a little while? That's a good question, hey? I've got loads more just like this coming up after this break. We'll be back in a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. How do you get your patients starting slow and like what kind of quantities do you get people to start out with if they haven't eaten a food for a little while? You're right. I do exactly the same thing. The problem is that people get really excited and they're like, I can eat this now. And then they just go too crazy and they can push themselves over the edge. Like it happens all the time. So I would say, for instance, if I'm including legumes, not to go eating a legume curry, but to maybe make like a soup and put like a half a handful of split red lentils that'll go through the entire meal. So you're talking micro amounts, you know, and not doing it every day. So I wouldn't introduce legumes and then they're a daily thing. I'd say try them a couple of times this week and see how that 
that sits. And if that sits really well, okay, we'll try them in maybe just slightly higher quantities. Um, and trying to, when I reintroduce foods, I'm just making sure we're not reintroducing too much at once because sometimes it can take up a bit of tolerance too. Well, you might introduce a little bit of the food and it's fine, but then adding another food on top of that too soon, the body hasn't really adjusted and the bacteria just can't handle it and they just ferment the wrong way and then begin to cause symptoms. Um, the other thing is with my SIBO patients as well is just letting them recognize that, you know, that fermentation process and those symptoms, it's your body's way of trying to sort stuff out. Like it's working hard in there. It's trying to do its thing. And it, it's a physiological process. All it is, is that bacteria is fermenting things in the wrong way or things are just slightly reacting. So you've got to give your body time. And if it reacts right now, we just need to do some more healing and balancing and go back there. Um, in my experience, most people can end up eating a pretty varied diet, but it's like anything. You, if you overdo it, it's going to end up causing problems. So it's about finding that balance and every person's going to be so, so different. And it comes back to the point you made earlier, which is we can't expect if we've been eating five foods for five years because we self-restricted and took a whole bunch of food out of our diet in, a, in an attempt to make ourselves feel better, we can't expect our body and our gut to just be like, oh, okay, now we're eating 30 different plant-based foods this week when for, for such a long time before this we've only had five. And that can be a bit of a mental shift as well to say, okay, well, this week I'm just bringing in one or two new things and I'm going to just work slowly through a list of veggies and fruits and plant-based foods that I really like. Yeah, and... And this is the problem as well is with restricting is that you've you've taught your microbiome to survive on a certain diet. And this is where people need to be really careful on being on certain diets for too long. And I see it a lot when people come into my practice and they've been doing FODMAPs for two years. They're like, oh, well, I only feel good when I'm on FODMAPs. Like, well, that's because you're eating nothing that's really hard to digest <laughs> or that's fermentable. So what that does, though, is it takes away all of the good things your microbiome actually need because a lot of these fibrous things that actually react are some of the best things for gut health. So it's looking at trying to support the body so that it can actually have the good things that it's going to do. And I guess this goes back to that conversation around emotional stuff around food. Don't demonize the food. It's not the food. It's the way your body's reacting to the food that's the problem right now. That's such great, uh, such a great reminder um, that we shouldn't be hating on the food. It's the food hasn't done anything wrong, unless of course we're, you know, I, I'm not all for McDonald's, but you know, lettuce and good quality vegetables and fruits. Let's not hate them. They've Leave done the nothing wrong. Alone. <laughs> <laughs> so food and microbiome are really important. Um, I'm, I am interested in your. You talked about how you you don't restrict people's diets unless absolutely necessary. And that really does, that's quite um, different to many of the SIBO doctors out there and naturopaths and practitioners who are saying, here's a SIBO diet, here's a printout, a handout. Now you follow that for three, six, 12 months. I'd love to uh, hear more about your personal experience with people and not putting them on such restricted diets. So this is where it's all we have for SIBO is a breath test that's super rudimentary. It tells us there's too much bacteria, but not what type and what balance or if there's fungus or whatever's going on. It's 
for what it is, it's super rudimentary to what it will be in 10, 20 years. But the other part of it is that if somebody's not getting symptoms from eating one of those foods, I don't really feel like it's warranted to restrict it. And certainly we want to have a look at, at that. But if they're feeling really good eating a certain diet, then that's really our best indicator that things are fermenting and going well from, from, from that point of view. The other thing, though, that I do do with my patients is actual microbiome testing. So we have the both. So we're like, okay, well, we know that the microbiome as a whole has low diversity and low numbers. And although we might have higher numbers up in the small intestine where they're not meant to be, if we restrict too much of this fiber, then the lower microbiome is going to be damaged. And I think this is where we haven't found this balance right with SIBO yet, because it is quite new where we're having antibiotics and things that are the killing off the microbiome in the small intestine and also but also the large intestine and then what ends up happening is we don't have SIBO anymore but we've got low numbers and low diversity in the large intestine and low numbers and low diversity in the gastrointestinal tract as a whole will contribute to our risk of non-communicable disease which is basically means any disease you that isn't infectious asthma allergies cancer um, autoimmune disease all of those things so I think we need to be careful and, and respectful that we're working with this system that's really quite complicated. You know, we've got three kilos of bacteria, yeast, um, viruses now that we're beginning to learn about in your microbiome. And we, we don't want to do anything that's too extreme that maybe will give you short-term symptomatic relief, but in the long term might actually damage things even further. I have a great interview with Dr. Jason Horolek, um, episode 75, for anybody that wants to go back and listen to it. And that's where we go through my Ubiome Explorer um, test results uh, because I went looking at what my diversity was and, work, and have been working with uh, Jason Horolek around improving my diversity. And it's, a, again, you know, we talk about shifts and mindset shifts. In my early days, I was just fixated on kill the creatures, kill the critters in my small intestine. Oh, I hate the fact I've got all this bacteria there. And I paid no attention whatsoever to my large bowel. These days, it's actually the reverse. I'm putting lots of attention to my large bowel. It's all about eating a diverse range of plant-based foods, having the right supplementation. And I have relapsing SIBO. I'm full of adhesions and so my SIBO keeps coming back. And so my approach now is to use the herbs as more like a last resort. If my symptoms flare up to a point where I really can't manage them myself through diet, stress reduction, lifestyle management, then I'll consider doing a round of herbs. But instead I'm treating the underlying cause, my adhesions, and I'm really eating for diversity. And I tell you what, even though my SIBO numbers are higher than they've been in the past, I feel better than I have felt in the past. So I don't think we, sh I think we need to be careful that we don't just fixate on SIBO and SIBO breath test results because it's, that's one tiny piece of the puzzle. Yeah, this is something that we, like one of the rules that we live by in the clinic is if, People might have something show up on a blood test or whatever, but if they're not symptomatic, 
you don't necessarily need to go in and treat it. Um, and this is where I think you can go a little bit wrong because a certain percentage of the population will have abnormal results in SIBO, in their thyroid, in inflammatory markers, etc. but it's not actually troublesome to everybody. So we need to be careful about a one-size-fits-all and really the biggest indicator of your health is you and how you're feeling. Um, and this is the way that we start, we practice naturopathy in our practice at least. It's all about signs and symptoms and then the tests actually will back that up. We've talked obviously quite a lot about food, which is so important and such a um, off, generally the first starting point for people. And we've, we've talked a bit about the gut microbiome. I'm interested to know if there's anything else you do other than, say, dietary support um, to support the microbiome. 100%. So we're looking at what are what are any what is anything that could be potentially damaging it so one of the big ones is stress we know that stress and high stress hormones like cortisol directly damages the microbiome so that's a big one um, we know that things like chlorine in the water that you're drinking so chlorine is a really effective antibacterial it's, it's what allows us to drink water straight from the tap so it's an absolute miracle but if you're drinking unfiltered water you're actually damaging the microbiome constantly especially in the upper intestine and if you're killing off bacteria perhaps then you're leaving room for more fungal growth there yeah which can cause like a CFO type situation so it's not a great thing the other thing is medications so everyone knows about antibiotics that's sort of a given antibiotics are going to damage your microbiome but some of the things that I learned on my travels when I did my world tour for the shift was that other medications can really damage your microbiome as well so non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs such as paracetamol um, and ibuprofen actually are highly damaging to the microbiome. And in fact, I spoke with Professor Rodney Dieterth and he said that a person who in the know, who knows about this testing, can test your microbiome and know which anti-inflammatory drug you are taking based on the results. So that one's a huge one. Um, the other one for women is the oral contraceptive pill definitely impacts on your microbiome and this is something that some women um, need to take you know because they might have pain or etc but some women are taking this just to let's say regulate their cycle in inverted commas which it doesn't really do um, but there's this over over prescription of medications so the future of microbiome as well I think we'll be looking at these things and going okay there's a new drug what is the impact on the microbiome before we start taking it so if you're taking any type of medication I'd be questioning that and even looking in to see if there's any research if that's going to be damaging it. The other thing is looking at different foods that we eat. Um, glyphosate actually has some good evidence now for the microbiome. So glyphosate is basically Roundup, the, the pesticide, sorry, herbicide that they use on genetically modified crops, wheat crops, etc. So glyphosate is a really big one and they talked about it a lot in the US, in the in the USA. We use glyphosate on crops here, but the US is way way higher. So you can see that even just by a matter of existing and eating food and drinking tap water, etc., that the microbiome can be damaged. So we need to look beyond diet. And in fact, I really believe that diet's a huge part of microbiome damage, but these environmental factors are just becoming more and more of a problem for our health what should we be doing with something as simple as our water 
filtering it. Um, at the very least, so there's there's chlorine in water, but there's a lot of other things in water that you might not necessarily want in there. But at the very least, if you're super budgeted, get a good quality carbon water filter. You know, that might even be one of those jugs that you put on your bench top. Really rudimentary, something that will take the chlorine out of it at the very least. What I like to use though is a water filter that has several layers of filtration. So it might actually filter out the chlorine, um, but also some of the fluoride, hopefully, and then remineralize it as well. So there's a lot of different brands out there, but you want one that has several layers of filtration, hopefully, and one that can remove fluoride and chlorine. Fluorides are really tiny molecules. So if your water filter can remove that, it's removing most of everything. So the people that are perhaps on a lower income or their budget is really tight, um, what should they be focusing on? Should they be focusing on, you know, investing in a water filtration system? Should they be trying to buy organic produce? Where do you get people to focus their energies if, if they don't have unlimited pots of money? Firstly, grow some of your own food. If you don't have much money and you have any land, balcony, etc., capacity to do that, try and grow some of your own food. And this might be herbs or some spinach or some of that that can actually make up your diet. You want to probably go to the Environmental Working Group website, which is ewc.org. Um, and that actually has a thing called the Dirty Dozen and the Clean 15. So that is a list of the fruits and vegetables that are highest in pesticides and lowest in pesticides. So if you look, for example, on the Dirty Dozen are things like apples and celery and strawberries. So if you're eating a lot of those, you want to actually avoid them. But on the Clean 15, things like avocados, onions are on there, pineapples, rock melons, honeydew, like those type of things you can easily and safely eat conventional. So you can sort of sway your diet a little bit in that way and just try not to consume too many of the highest known pesticide um, ones. Um, a water filter I think is pretty essential, even if it's, you know, a really cheap one to begin with. Um, the, the cheapest water filter, you can probably get one for $50 or something. But I think there's no point in spending heaps of money on supplements, you know, eating organic food and doing all the other stuff if you're not looking at things like just filtering the chlorine out of your everyday water. Is there also a, a piece in this water puzzle about how much hydration you're getting every day? Definitely. And if you're underhydrated, it's going to affect your total gut function. Um, you know, it's going to lead to constipation. It's going to affect that. If you have diarrhea, you're going to need more water because you're constantly getting de like dehydrated through that way. Um, but you can also overhydrate. Um, I have had patients that drink four, six, eight litres of water a day, and that literally flushes out all of your minerals. Um, it's not great, a great way to go, not literally all you would die, but a lot. <laughs> it flushes your minerals out of your body quite a lot. So you want to really look at kind of that two litres a day, kind of fits in for most people. But if it's hot, if it's... Um, if you're exercising a lot, if you're pregnant, there's some different needs for water intake, but you probably don't want to go above two to three litres. So we've been touching on the whole body approach that you have uh, around getting people back to health. So we've looked at food, the gut microbiome, water. You've touched on stress. How important is stress in getting our bodies back into a healthier state? So what you want to look like, a good analogy is when you're stressed, where do you feel it? Or when you're nervous, where do you feel it? In your stomach. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm just sitting yeah. here going, it's all in my gut. My yeah. gut twists and knots, and often I need to go to the toilet. Yep. So it's automatic. Your nervous system of your 
um, like brain is affected to the nervous system in the gut. They're intrinsically connected. So whenever you're nervous, straight away what will happen is that your body's going to downregulate digestive function. So when you're in flight or fight, the body's saying, we don't need to digest right now. We just need to survive. And to survive, all we need are muscles to run or fight and brain function so we can think about what we're going to do. And they're the only two organ systems. So we're not really going to be getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger and being extreme flight or fight these days, but most people are in a, like a lonic a chronic low-grade flight or fight. So what that means in that state is literally when you're stressed like that, the little acid pumps in your stomach will stop producing acid, okay? They'll actually stop producing that acid. So what will happen is you're stressed, you have low hydrochloric acid. Hydrochloric acid's job is to keep the bacteria in your small intestine under control. And I think that low hydrochloric acid is a huge role in SIBO as well because what happens then is you get these bacterial overgrowth and this dysfunction where it shouldn't be. The other thing is your enzyme function will slow down and your peristalsis can slow down as well which is that movement through the gut so as soon as you're stressed you have alterations in the microbiome peristalsis issues low stomach acid not enough enzymes and this is where coming back to if you're just taking bone broth and slippery elm it's not going to fix the problem if you're in flight or fight constantly it's just going to sort of provide a band-aid so what you need to have a look at is how stressed am i and how am i existing now it's all about mindset and it's about how you're actually looking at this because sometimes you just need to do a bit of a, a life inventory and you need to look at how am I existing day to day. I think a really good exercise is to, if you feel stressed and time poor is to actually literally write out your day like a bit of a manifesto where this is what's happening. I wake up at this time, I eat breakfast, I do this, I drive to work, etc. And having a look in there and, and thinking, is there actually any space in there where I'm creating relaxation, where I'm not on the go, where I'm not rushing from one thing to another? Because most people's lives go like this. They get up in the morning, they have breakfast, they get the kids ready, they get the kids to school, they get themselves to work, they're working all day. They're probably eating their lunch over their desk because they're so busy and overwhelmed. They finish work, they go and pick up the kids, they're, they're back at home, they're cooking, they're doing the dishes, they're doing the washing up, they're you know unloading the washing machine. They might have an hour of TV and then they're asleep. And, that, and that's their life kind of thing. So you really need to think about that. And the other thing is a lot of people will say, well, I don't have time for meditation. I don't have time for exercise, etc." And this is where you need to make the time and you need to really look at prioritizing that and find out what's filling up your day. Another really important conversation around stress and overwhelm is looking at screen time and the way that we're using our phones and technology. So there's a really good TED talk on this actually that, that talks about it. They'll try and find for you to put in the show notes back but basically what it's showing is that in the last 10 years the amount of time we're looking at our screens has something like tripled and what that means is that in your day there's only so much time that you have for yourself that you can do the things that give you joy that make you happy and keep you unstressed so if you break up your day in time blocks into um, human function things like eating sleeping showering etc preparing food into work there's only really three or so hours in the day that you actually have to yourself and we're spending a lot of that on Facebook or scrolling through Instagram or watching Netflix and there's no stopping cues for these things whereas traditionally if we were reading a book you would read the chapter of that book and at the end of that chapter it would make you consider hmm do I want to continue or do I want to put this book down you would watch a tv show at the end of that tv show it would be finished and you wouldn't be able to watch it until next week but now what happens is we're on continuous scroll where we might be on our screens for an hour two hours and we're not even really realizing it because everything is just endless there is no end to Facebook you will never get to the bottom of of it. So it's just bringing that awareness to if I'm stressed and I don't have time, how much time am I actually 
on a screen? And if I'm on a screen, am I able to cultivate a place of calm within myself? Because you're always looking at information and getting that overload. You've got a great blog um, talking about the impact of health influences. And I think that this can often contribute to stress amongst people that are chronically unwell when they're looking at these people with the perfect bodies, the perfect lives, the perfect makeup, talking about it's just so easy, just have your green smoothie or celery juice in the morning and you too could be like me and you're sitting there, you know, maybe carrying more weight than you'd like, bloated, feeling miserable, exhausted, but looking at them thinking, all I've got to do is have celery juice and I could be like them and and I'm stressed because I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) Celery juice will fix your life, Beck. It will fix everything. Um, The influences I think is really interesting because what you have is is this unrealistic expectation of what health is, you know, and you've got people in bikinis at the beach, you know, and calling that health, drinking a green smoothie with perfectly done makeup, doing Facebook lives, like full makeup, full hair, you know, talking about, you know, getting back to nature. It just doesn't really add up and make any sense. And it's looking at when we look at these images constantly, this is what we're inundated. It's almost like the new Dolly magazines. When we were kids, we had Dolly, we had Cosmopolitan. We were growing up with all this perfection, but now it's even more because we can open up our phones at any time, scroll through that feed, and all we have is people that are showing that health is perfect and health isn't perfect. Health is messy and it's hard and it can be uncomfortable, but it can also bring us so much joy and reward. But it is messy, you know, it's not clean. So just recognize like if you're following someone and they don't make you feel good, you know, if you're looking at that and feeling bad about yourself, unfollow, like stop putting that stuff in your feed because it's going to stress you out ultimately. It is definitely. And, and this leads into emotional health as well. And I think stress and emotional health are very linked and, and also just the emotional health, health of knowing that I think I need to have a, a social media detox as well. What do you mean by emotional health when it comes to helping the body return to health? So this is where we look at that we're more than just our body. We're more than just our skin and bones. Um, and you know this because you feel it. And it and it's very science-based. So we have our physical body and then we have our mental health, yeah, the things you think, and then your emotions sort of come after that. So you, it's the way that you think and feel and experience things day to day ultimately will affect your health. There's actually studies on this. So there's studies showing that people who have a broken heart are more likely to have a heart attack. Okay, so if they've just undergone a separation or the death of the death of a loved one, that type of thing, um, it's really interesting when you look at it. But the emotional part of it is the hardest part of ourselves to look at. It's easy to um, eat a gluten-free diet. It's easy to look at physical symptoms. But to look at the darker part of ourselves, it takes a lot more self-responsibility and it takes you real to really be willing to look at your stuff. And what we say to our patients before they undergo their journey with us is that, you know, we're going to want to look at your stuff. We've all got it. It's all there. And it's our job is to try and tease that out and really find out what's going on for you. And some people aren't ready right at the start. And sometimes when people are in physical distress, so if they've got really bad SIBO and they're in pain all the time, it might not be the time for them to work on their emotional stuff. They might need to actually get out of the crisis so that they can be in their body so that they can actually look at that and acknowledge it. But certainly we would look at emotional health being so important, especially for gut. I've never, ever had a patient patient with a chronic gut complaint. I've seen over 5,000 of them that hasn't had an emotional link to it, not one. 
something that I see uh, commonly because I now am moving into the space of doing a podcast for all around sexual abuse and abuse of children because that's been my history. And because I've, I've been opening up about this and I talk a lot about being you know, someone that survived sexual abuse, the number of SIBO patients of women that contact me uh, who say I was sexually abused um, and that now that's just one component of emotional um, health that we need to deal with. But I hear so commonly there's been sexual abuse, physical abuse, emotional abuse that has been a picture in somebody's life. And it's been stuff, it's stuff that I've worked on, will continue to work on. And uh, I really agree with you. I think you need to be in a point where you're ready. And this comes back to what you said at the start, that you need to be ready to make some changes. And by the time you're getting to the emotional health piece, you really do need to be wanting to do it and ready to do it. Because boy, oh boy, can some stuff come up from the past that you've locked away, thought you'd thrown away the key, and now you're facing it and dealing with it. But it's so good to do that. It is. And I think there's, you know, like, you, it's just finding the right support at the right time and recognizing it's a lifelong journey. Um, growing is a lot. If you want to grow and progress in this life, you will have to be looking at your health, your emotions, all of this stuff. Like for me personally, with my story, like I had to overcome heroin addiction, uh, like years and years of like physical and verbal abuse. And it wasn't something that happened overnight, you know, and it didn't really start until I went to naturopathic college and I started getting exposed to some of these different things and some, you know, energetic healing and emotional work and different practitioners that sort of helped me on my way. So I don't think that you need to do everything overnight, but it's it's a journey and you need to be brave to heal. And, and this is the thing that and I applaud people so much. And what I love the most about what we do is that just watching just how brave people are and how strong they are and finding that inner strength that you just didn't think you had to work through stuff because it's in there. It is. And it's re- you, it makes you really proud. And I speak from my own experience. I never knew I was as strong as I am. I never knew I had the courage that I have to face some of the things that I've faced and there'll be other things that I face in my future. I don't know what they'll be yet, but there will be things that will come up in my future. Um, I'm really proud of what I've been able to achieve and accomplish in terms of dealing with the emotional stuff from my past. And um, but, but 10 years ago, I could not even bear to think about it. So, you know, it, it this evolution occurs. Um We touched on environmental toxicity with talking about water and what's in our water. What other environmental toxins should we be considering when we're trying to bring our bodies back to health? Okay, so outside of gut health, um, most of our environmental toxins actually have the biggest impact on hormones, hormones and your reproductive system. So some of the really big ones are plastic toxins. So things like bisphenol A, but not just bisphenol A, all bisphenols. Um, So most plastics actually have some level of toxicity in them. So don't be fooled by BPA products. You really just need to go plastic free. But BPA is an interesting one. It's a xenoestrogen. So it actually mimics estrogen. It's an endocrine disrupting chemical. It's been found to be associated with increases in infertility, um, with high blood pressure, um, even with IQ in children. There's been studies on BPA that have found to be links there. So it is something we need to get rid of. The good thing about BPA is that, and other bisphenols is as soon as you stop 
using plastic and plastic products that actually things will improve quite well it'll get cleared from your system quite quickly at least anyway so don't just think plastic drinking bottles think food containers liquids and plastics are particularly bad so anything liquid that's in a pouch anything canned because the cans are lined with plastic soft drinks the cans are lined with plastic um, also coffee cups so paper coffee cups are lined with plastic when you heat plastic it releases up to 50 times more bpa into your drink so looking out for all of those things the other one, really big one is phthalates um, and phthalates actually are studied more and more that certain ones are banned in certain countries, not in Australia, um, but phthalates actually cause disruption of the endocrine system as well. So phthalates have been associated again with increases in, well, with associated with breast cancer, associated with um, feminization in young boys even, so quite estrogenic type effects and a, a swathe of other things. They're really chemicals you don't want in your body. The good thing about phthalates is that we can avoid them largely because they're mostly found in personal care products under fragrances. So anything that if you listening to this podcast at home or when you get home, go into your shower, go into your bathroom and I want you to pick up all of your products there. And if it says fragrance or perfume on the label, it has phthalates in it so it's really easy to identify and this is things like shampoos conditioners moisturizers makeup um, anything that you're going to be using dishwashing liquid dishwash dishwashing powder all of that stuff is going to have phthalates so we need to look out for that the other source of phthalates actually is scented candles and air fresheners, um, anything that has a scent. And once you cut these things out of your life, you become really hyper aware of these powerful perfumes um, because, you know, they really are really intense. So phthalates, um, BPA is another really big one. And the other one is really just looking at pesticides, so eating organic wherever possible. So all of our food chain has got pesticides through it. You know, there's still even traces of DDT in the soil. So we need to really make sure that we're eating organic where possible. And like I said, if budget's a real issue, look at the dirty dozen and the clean 15. I also talk to people about just thinking about where your meat is coming from. So not using, you know, Cajun battery chickens, making sure that your beef that you're having is antibiotic free. So two thirds of the antibiotics that come into Australia go to livestock like cattle and pigs. So if you, even if you're not taking antibiotics and you're eating these foods all the time, you're actually getting it through the food chain. So really thinking about how did this actually get on my plate? I love farmer's markets. You can go talk to the farmers about what they use and what they're growing and really try and get in touch with the food. Um, one of the other really interesting things I learned on my travel was just the relationship between the soil microbiome and the plant microbiome and our microbiome. So if we're not eating foods that have microbes on them, i.e. organic food that's pulled straight from the soil, it can actually impact on our gut as well. It can. And, and I remember watching a program on uh, TV not that long ago, and it was, it was fascinating. It was a soil microbiologist who would go to farms test the microbiome of the soil and then um, reintroduce uh, species as necessary and help farmers grow um, crops that were then growing in, in amazing soil. And I was just so fascinated by that. And she was showing slides under microscopes of a very barren soil versus a really rich and microbiome diverse soil. And you just, and you, it's very easy to forget or not to think about what's happening to the food that we're eating, especially when it's been packaged up and it comes in a plastic wrap in our supermarket. Uh, but it's so important. And it goes back to what you were saying, try and grow what you can on of your own. We live in an apartment. 
um, we don't have a garden, but we grow things on our balcony. And even if it's just a few herbs and a few vegetables here and there, we're still doing something that we've grown with our own two hands, or I should say it's Sam's two hands. <laughs> My green thumb is not great. It kills plants b- before it grows them, <laughs> which is just so awful for someone like me because I feel like I should you know, be a much better plant grower than I am. But we really do make an effort to grow things. Um, I Something that I do, so I, again, this has been a process for me stripping out I went through and looked at all of the products I was using in my house I've talked about this on previous podcasts Um, I now use really natural products um, natural deodorant natural shampoo and conditioner natural washing powders hand soaps all of those types of things I used to wear perfume every day I now don't so there's a big change that's occurred in the way I approach my products and also looking at my food. And something I really recommend you do is look at who's in your local community or within your state who is farming organically or biodynamically, who may offer boxes of produce that they will deliver to your city. You could pick them up at a local store or they deliver to your door. I now, we do that for pork and for chicken and where um, I would do it for eggs, although I'm not doing great with eggs at the moment. Um, and it not only are we supporting a local farmer, which I love, uh, we've visited the farmers, so we've seen firsthand their farming practices. They welcome people onto their farms, which is always a really great sign. We can see the quality of their um, animals and, you know, they really are happy animals. And um, then we get this amazing meat that is straight from the farm. It's incredibly fresh. It tastes amazing. And we're not then buying any meat from the supermarket um, where, you know, it's really questionable what practices have gone into producing that. Um, I rather eat less meat and put my money into really good meat than buy big slabs of meat from the supermarket and not be helping my body at all. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just conscious eating, really. And it's, I, I love this conversation around the microbiome and our environment. It's, it's just really the research that's showing is that we're so interconnected to everything, our microbes to us, our, our, us to the environment, our soil, our food source. It's all part of one. It is. Something that you offer in your clinic is um, body work and I'm interested to, to hear from your perspective how important uh, the body, the physical structure of the body, the alignment of the body is to regaining health. It's really important and this is where it's you can't compartmentalise things. You're, you're part of one and I think that having body awareness around that structure. So that is, you know, doing yoga, doing movement practices, doing stretching so that you have an awareness around your body will actually lead you to an awareness in other areas of the life. And certainly if you have spinal misalignment and congestion in certain areas and inflammation, it's going to, it can actually inflame your gut and other areas of the body too. So movement's important. I love yoga for gut health because it works on stress and relaxation, but it also provides compression and movement around your lymphatic system and the gastrointestinal organs which provides more blood supply to them as well I love yoga too it's it's my most favorite uh sort of structured exercise I think it's just fantastic (laughs) yeah absolutely 
So we've covered quite a lot of things. And to recap, um, you know, the, the key areas that you look at in terms of improving gut health and overall health of food, the gut microbiome, water, stress, emotional health, environmental toxicity and body structure and alignment. Is there anything else that we haven't yet touched on that you feel is very important to returning to health? No, I think too, though, that sometimes people can get a bit overwhelmed when they see all the pieces that are important and what they need to do. But, you know, it's you need to take things one step at a time and you don't need to treat all of the systems and look at all of the things. It's about making small steps in the right direction. And if you keep making small steps in the right direction, you'll eventually get there. You will. Now, I'd love for us to, to quickly touch on the shift, which is your audio docuseries. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that is, who you've interviewed and how people can listen to it? Yeah, so I did a world tour um, to interview world experts on gut health for the shift. Um, and what it's about really is looking at what are all the different parts to gut health and outside of just the microbiome, but how is it interconnected and what are all the different pieces that we need to look at? So as well as what is the latest research, you know, what are the things that we need to do right now to fix it? So I'm really excited about it. It's going to be released in a couple of weeks and there's, it's a seasonal podcast. So what will happen is the whole season will be released. Um, There'll be 12 episodes to download, which I believe will be available once this podcast is released. And those 12 episodes will cover all of the different facets of gut health. Um, We've got world leaders in microbiology, in cardiology, in um, rheumatology, in gynecology, we've got an integrative gastroenterologist, we've got a lot of patient stories in there as well. It's going to be really amazing. So the shift is really about getting you back in touch with your body and really getting you to understand on a deeper level what's happening holistically with the gut. And how can people find it? So they go to theshiftclinic.com forward slash gut. Wonderful. And that link and the others that we've mentioned in today's podcast are available on this show notes. So just head to thehealthygut.com forward slash podcast, where you will be able to see today's episode, get the show notes and uh, see all the other episodes that we've done. Catherine Maslin, thank you so much for coming on to the Healthy Gut podcast today and sharing your enormous wealth of wisdom when it comes to all things gut health and body health. I've learned so much from you today and really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful. I hope you enjoyed today's episode with Catherine Maslin. She's always uh, so full of interesting information on how she shares her knowledge and experience to help her patients return to health. Now, guys, don't forget that I've got my five-week discovery challenge coming up this August. If you would like to learn more about how you can live well with SIBO, you can sign up at thehealthygut.com or head to the show notes from today's episode and you can click the link to learn more about the program. And as always, I would simply love it if you would leave a rating and review from today's show to let other people know that this is the right SIBO podcast for them. You've been listening to the Healthy Gut Podcast with your host, Rebecca Coombs. To learn more about the Healthy Gut or our podcast, head to thehealthygut.co forward slash podcast. 
We would like to thank Red Lemon Productions for the production and original music score of this podcast. To find out more about their services, head to redlemonproductions.com. The Healthy Gut Podcast is a production of The Healthy Gut. Thanks for listening. 